Amen. You guys can have a seat. Again, thank you so much for being here. Um, we were on vacation last week and uh, had a great week with the boys and um, with Wendy. She was there too. We don't go anywhere without her. Um, things don't tend to go good when she's not around. We're out on the beach one day and we had a tent set up and um, there was a, a family that came in and um, you could tell they haven't been to the beach a lot. And, and growing up, we, we didn't go on vacation, really. I, I don't, like, m- my kids expect us to go places every year. And I'm like, I don't, we didn't go anywhere. We just stayed at home. Um, but we, we were out there, and they were setting up their umbrella. And, you know, a beach umbrella, you've got the, the spike in, obviously, on the bottom, digging into the sand. Well, they brought the umbrella out, and they put it up and just kind of stuck it down and kind of wiggled it. And they took their hand off, and it stayed up straight because the wind wasn't blowing. And to themselves, they went, oh, I think that's good. Well, my issue was, I was on the downwind side of that umbrella. And umbrellas at the beach tend to flip. And unless you really can predict well the flips, I'm just not really in the midst of my vacation looking to get a spike in the eye. It's just not really what I'm about on the beach. So I watched them really closely. And sure enough, in a few minutes... The wind kicked up, and me and my nephew were sitting there, and, and he kind of just like, like just balled up, and I kind of reached back and just barely caught one of the pieces, and we went over and kind of helped him get it set better. And um, it, it's, it's kind of like that song. Um, that, that umbrella really wasn't any good to him. Like the function, the idea of it was fine, but it wasn't really, it really wasn't anchored down well. Um, this idea that um, we trust that God is generally good and He loves us is all well and good. Um, but if our real true life and, and hope is not really deeply anchored into Him, we don't really get to find out, is, is He Lord in both windy and not windy times? That umbrella was standing hands off because the wind just wasn't blowing. Um, and it seemed all well and good. And life many times is like that. It just seems kind of well and good enough. But if God is really almighty God, then he's got to be Lord in storms and in easy times. Because if he's not in control of my life and he's not who I lean on during that time and in good times, then really what kind of God is he? And as we think about this, is really think about what our life is anchored into um, I, I'm, I'm glad for right now. Now, I'll be honest with you, the season of, of us being in this series that we're in right now probably really isn't the, the best planning strategy because it's vacation season. Everybody's kind of in and out. And if you're like me, the end of summer points out one simple fact. You live vehicularly on the struggle bus. You know what the struggle bus is? Do you ride it often? I actually was promoted a few years back, and I was given the opportunity to drive the bus. Um, not really of any desire of my own. It's just the events of life kind of led that way. And um, not until recently, I actually found out, uh, I think they've actually placed a bus stop for the struggle bus, actually at my address. It stops in front of my house now for other people to come and get on. But it's always conveniently there for our family to jump onto any time. This is, this is, we came back from vacation when I come back from vacation, at the, by the end of it, I am resisting society. You, you, you with me? Like, I don't even want to go to the grocery store when I get back home. I need to. We're desperately out of food. We, we took what we had with us, 
And we ate all we could before we left. So there's, there's virtually nothing there. It's desperation eating. It's, it's college freshman eating is really what it is. We came back the other day. I was resisting the grocery store so bad. Struggle bus moment. About all we had to eat was popcorn. You ever hit that point? You're like, well, we can always pop popcorn. We were out of salt. <laughs> When's the last time you ran out of salt? I stood there in my kitchen and just stared at the place the salt should be with the hope that a miracle was going to happen only to see God do nothing in my kitchen. And I was like, that's it. It's, this may not be a big deal to everybody, but it's a big deal to me right now, and I'm struggling, okay? So in our lives, we, we go through, in all seriousness, difficult times. For some of us, it's a season. It's, it's not real long. It's real specific. It's over one specific thing. For some of us, and, and this is where I would categorize myself, it's, it's a struggle that comes in waves. Um, it, it's about this thing of happiness or sadness um, into depression and, and, and things like that. And, and during this season where people are really in and out of town, thank goodness for technology, so if somebody misses a message, they can hopefully just go back and listen to it and take some notes and, and, and get some notes from other people or get some notes from me. Um, because I really believe that for some of us, we've, we've adopted this idea, like I've said out loud, spoken not life over my own life, but death over my own life, and just said, I, I, just, I can't be happy. It's not, in, it's, in, it's not in the cards for me to be happy. Some of us really, really have a tough time with this. And some of us really have never struggled with it, but we love people that really have a tough time with joy. And we don't understand it. We want them to have it. We work hard to encourage them towards it and almost want to just figure out a way to just hand them some of ours. But it just doesn't seem to click the same way for them that it does for us. The call of Scripture, in fact, the command of Scripture is towards joy. Um, I don't... I've never really responded well to being just told to be happy. It just didn't seem to just happen for me that, that suddenly. But we see the joy of the Lord throughout Scripture, which is really what we want to kind of look at today, um, because it is something that He wants to give us. It's something that we can have and hold and we can expect. But before any of that, I really believe it's something we need to understand. Now, like the first week that we were in the series, Cloudy with a Chance, that, that no matter how dark it seems to be, there is a chance when we belong to God, we're in His family. Just like the first week, we're going to end with some things that you or I can personally do if this is your struggle now, or it's been your struggle. We're going to end with some things that we can do into the lives of others. Um, there's going to be a lot of notes on the screen, um, bunches of scripture references that we won't read all of. Um, I was told by a few people that it worked well for them the first week when I just recommended if you don't want to write, 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 that doesn't connect as well for you, just take your cell phone out and just take a picture of the screen. Um, scan it down towards me. I'll try to pose for you occasionally if I can. If I see you aiming directly at me, just kind of give me a little bit of a wink and I'll, you know, just, you know, pop it one way or something. I'll just, I'll just try to do something. But, you know, whatever you need to do to kind of take these notes, I want to encourage you, please do. Bobby really enjoyed that. Um, please, please take some of this down. Read some of these scriptures. Thank you, Frankie. Um, read some of these scriptures um, during the week. Um, we will be in Psalm 16 more specifically. We won't have time to go verse by verse, but uh, we'll be in there more specifically. Um, this thing of joy that seems to be so absent for us 
And we talked last, oh, well, two weeks ago. I keep saying last week. Last week, Dale preached. Um, we talked about how Jesus intends to um, make our joy complete. Um, John 15, 11 talks about that our joy, in fact, is incomplete. And we're made to be completed by Him. And, and His joy in our lives, there's fullness of joy, of happiness. Um, you know, there's a question, though, that I've never really thought about until within about the last year. And that question, I, I really believe, is very important. And we'll talk about why it's important, but I, I want you to think over this. Do you really believe on a real level that God himself is happy? Now, we refer to God as Father, and, and when we relate God as Father, we try to figure out, okay, then how does he treat his kids? Is God somebody, because we read the Old Testament and kind of go, well, gosh, this guy kind of sounds mean, there's a grudge, there's an edge to him. Is he this dad who is kind of like got joy in a bucket and, and he's going to hand it out to the good kids like the kids that get the, you know, the, the lollipop at the end of children's church or something, right? I, my kids don't often come out with candy. I don't know what that says about them. But, but you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like, is he the dad that's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to give to the good ones? Is he just angry at the ones that misbehave? See, I want to I talk with you out of a few places in Scripture, and, and, and it's not exhaustive. I'll just tell you that up front. There, there, there's more to it than this. But I really believe that it's important that we see God and understand Him in His essence and who He is as joyful. Because if joy comes from Him, we need to see Him as a resource for that. It's important that we understand that that's who He is. So when we look at God, and, and is He in fact happy? Um, I, I want to suggest a few different verses of Scripture to you to, to really consider the first one is in 1 Timothy 1.11 that just simply seems to just point out and just say this, this thing of that God is happy. Paul is talking to Timothy and he's talking about the effectiveness of the gospel. And he's basically saying this, the gospel is for people that need it. That God understands brokenness. And he doesn't say that that the gospel is God's response to love. It doesn't say that it comes out of God's generosity. It doesn't say that it, that it comes out of God's um, pleasure with just people that behave well. It, Paul, inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit, says this to Timothy. He says that the gospel comes to us as the glory of God from the blessed God or from the happy God. In other words, just the gospel itself, this idea that we can know God and be saved through Jesus, that there is a plan for our life, it all just comes from not out of a good day that God had or out of um, his um, righteousness that he just has to be good enough to people, but it just that it just stems from this blessed, happy, existent God. Now that happiness is so real that it overflows into undeserving people. In Zephaniah 3.17 specifically, it, it shows us that God is so happy that He can, in fact, be happy with us. Now, for many of us, we are happy with people when they behave well, when they do right, when they do things for us. See, the, the great thing about this passage in Zephaniah, it's a minor prophet, and, and, and Zephaniah, that prophet, like many other minor prophets, um, were, were given a message that God saw the deeds of people. And they were insane. They were disrespectful to him. They didn't rely on him. Um, they basically um, just, just turned away from his goodness. And in Zephaniah, 
there's this passage specifically in 317 that talks about the joy of the Lord just reigns over His people. That it says that He, that he sings a song of happiness over us. But the book does not deny that people misbehave. There was this really sweet thing that used to happen when my boys were younger. Um, Wendy would go in and we would, we would pray with them before they went to bed, but Wendy specifically was the one that would go in and she would sing to them. Now, I, I didn't sing to them. Um, my voice tends to give children nightmares. So I, I, I was not the voice of music. But Wendy would go in and she would sing these certain songs to them and it was just so sweet. And, and I, I would, I would kind of peek in sometimes and I would listen to her sing and and all the time she sang, it was, just, it was this, this, just this joy that was on her face as she sang over them. Now, I can promise you, I know my children well. And on the days she sang to them, it was a sure bet that they misbehaved. There was a sure bet that they did some things wrong on those days. But none of their wrong canceled out just her joy as a parent singing over them and loving them. God is, is so happy just in His existence. He's, he's got so much joy that even in our misbehavior, He still can't help but sing over us and be good to us when we don't deserve it. And, and His happiness, His joy is not just so full that it overflows. There is a quality of strength to it that's remarkable and needs to be understood. Um, in Nehemiah 8.10 Specifically, it describes God's joy this way, that it is so great that it is our strength. It's strength to us. Now, in Nehemiah chapter 8, specifically, and, and if you don't know the story, I just, this is an inadequate sum up, but, but here's basically what it is. The, the children of Israel, the people of God, had been in exile. They had been captive. And the, the city, the temple, the walls had been destroyed. So God allows them to go back and rebuild. This is literally a rebuild season for their existence. They're rebuilding the walls for security. They're rebuilding a place of worship for the presence of God. They're rebuilding all this. The building projects, even though they were really heavily opposed, had all gotten completed. And, and during their discovery process of what the remnants of what were still there, the, the scraps, the leftovers, the, the rubble, they discovered that there were these writings that God had given them, the very word of God. And so they, they really they took a census. They took, they, they, they took account of everybody. They gathered everybody there. And there were people there that could read it in its original language and then explain it to everybody. They wanted to make sure at that moment, because of God's goodness, that everybody understood the word as best they could. And when they began to read the word of God and how loving he was and how perfect he was and how gracious he was to them, <clears throat> it led to this moment where really what came out of it was not joy but guilt. Because they realized in the light of who God was, who they really were. And see, that happens. We can understand that because many times in our lives, um, we sense this draw, this call to God. We want to move our lives back to Him. So what do we often say? Well, I need to get back into church. I need to kind of reinsert the church. Only to go and sit under a preaching of God's Word that we go, gosh, it, like, that just kind of called me out for stuff that I shouldn't be doing. I, I just, like, I feel a little bit angry. I feel a little bit guilty. I just, like, I don't feel joyful. And God knew that about His people. And, and when He spoke this Word to His people, this was basically what's said in chapter 8. It says this, don't give in to guilt. It says, go eat, go drink, go celebrate, um, 
be joyful in what you're doing. It says, even for people that don't have food, give them food. Let them eat. Let them celebrate. Because the joy of the Lord, His goodness, His happiness to restore His people is so strong that it's meant to be our strength. What did they specifically need strength for? Happiness. They couldn't do it on their own. They were miserable. They felt guilty. I mean, think about that for a second. The, the, the joy of God, the, the, the happiness as He just exists, is so strong that it can bring happiness when we don't have the power to be happy. So when we talk about the joy of the Lord as our strength, that it's a gift, that it's what we need, it, Old Testament, New Testament, the words of Jesus, it all agrees that God is happy regardless of what I do. He's happy to me in spite of what I do. And His happiness is strong enough to bring joy into my life when I can't seem to find that on my own. And if you're anything like me and you really have a tough time finding joy, that's hopefully a message of encouragement to you that that's how strong the joy of the Lord is. It can bring happiness when you just can't seem to find it or feel it. This is who God is. He is happy. Now, what does that really mean? God's happiness is in the essence of who He is, not in acquisition or experience. In other words, God's not happy because what He gets or what He goes through. And for us, we're not exactly like that, right? We don't live our lives like that. When we lose our happiness, many times it's because of what we've lost or what we've experienced. And when we're looking for happiness, it's what we can gain or what we can go through, who we can meet, who we can be connected to, what job we can have. It's, it's, it's we look at what can make me happy. We don't look at our lives as, hang on a second, I could actually just live joyfully outside of acquisition, outside of experience. That's the call of eternity that's put into our souls. That's what we want to be moving towards as believers. Fortunately, we have the life of Jesus in the Word for us to look at, for us to follow, because Jesus took the happiness, the joy of God, and lived it out in the flesh. Now, if you think Jesus lived the easiest life, a better life than what we, than what we lived in experience, I just got to be honest with you, you're wrong. In fact, Scripture steps forward with this clear statement that he, he experienced everything that we experienced. He went through death of friends. He went through um, hardness from people's um, comments to him, the way he was treated. He went through physical punishment and death. I mean, he went through emotional, physical, all kinds of pain that you can go through. He experienced it all. In fact, before he ever showed up on earth, the prophet Isaiah, God put this, these words into the prophet Isaiah's heart of how to paint the picture of the coming Savior, what kind of life that he was willing to live, knowing it in advance. In chapter 53 in Isaiah, it portrays Jesus as, quote, a man of sorrow or suffering, depending on what your English translation says. Not he had some bad times. He had a couple bumps in the road. Man of sorrow. That, that's really, I'll be honest with you, that's not my label I'm looking for. Man of happiness, man of everything goes well, that, that, like, that sounds good. Man of sorrow, that's not usually the title. That's not the description we want on our life. But it also says this about Jesus. This was a willingness that he had to go through these things. It says that he, would, he was willing to give his back, give his back to those that would beat him, 
He was willing to give his beard to those that would tear it out, and he would not hide his face from those that would scorn and spit at him. And the New Testament agrees with every one of these things. So this teaches us something significant about the quality of the joy that the Lord has that he wants to put in our life. Remember, Jesus said himself, he said, I've spoken words so that you will have my joy in you and that your joy will be made complete. So what does the joy look like that Jesus lived out? I want you you to consider a couple things. In spite of that description, I want you to consider this. Jesus called himself multiple times, referred to himself as a bridegroom in Matthew 2 specifically. Now, I've done a lot of weddings. I've got a couple more that I'm doing this year. And not yet, not yet, have I stood at the front of a wedding beside a groom who just looked depressed. Now, I know there's a lot of jokes from a lot of husbands about the later years of marriage. Jesus didn't describe himself as a cranky old husband. He described himself as a bridegroom, as the man standing there on his wedding day. And on that day, I see a lot of joy in groom's eyes. Whether they're thinking about five years or 50 years down the line, or quite honestly, ladies, if they're just thinking about that night, I see a lot of smiles on these guys' faces. They are excited and they're ecstatic about the marriage that they're getting ready to walk into. And that's how Jesus describes himself constantly with that level of excitement looking out at the people that he's calling to him. Jesus was accused by his doubters as having too much fun. Like when you really look at all the things that they accused Jesus of, they accused him of having too much fun. Jesus never sinned. He never, in fact, did something around sinners or with sinners that really cast doubt on, the, on his specific actions. But he was willing to hang out with them. In, in this passage, people got mad because he was just sitting at a table having a meal, enjoying himself, the life that God had given him, and the people in front of him, even though the people in front of him did not love him and follow him. Jesus had so much joy that he didn't see them as his enemy. He saw them as the love of his life, and he enjoyed it. He assigned joy as part of coming into the kingdom. Matthew 13, 44, that passage talks about there was this man um, who saw a treasure, found a treasure in a field. This is, Jesus said, this is, what's, this is what getting saved is like, coming to know God. He said he found a treasure in the field, freaked out, lost his mind, buried it, reburied it, went and sold everything that he had. And the scripture says, and with joy paid every dime to own it. He said, coming into the kingdom, there's joy in even getting rid of things that aren't needed to know God better. Jesus put himself in the place of the shepherd and the widow in key passages like Matthew 18 and Luke 15. When when things were lost, when the shepherd lost a sheep and when the widow lost coins, when when something was missing, when something was missing, he said, "I, I am those people because when it's found and I will find it, he said, there is celebration. In fact, specifically, the shepherd and the widow call for a group celebration. See, when Jesus went looking for you, and found you, and you put your faith and trust in Him, Jesus didn't just go, well, didn't I do a good job? He, he, he brought collective celebration because of the joy that He's got. You know, I know misery loves company, but joy is contagious. You ever known that? Joy is so contagious that when, you're, when you don't want to be joyful, and you're around really happy people, you want to hit them. 
right? Like it, it's so it's so effective. It, it'll even make you more mad. I say that because I've gotten increasingly irritated at just ridiculously happy happy people. Like I'm so happy that I don't have any problems. Can you please take some of mine? Right? You you rather just kind of offer them to them? Jesus described. Now think about this. If if, if anybody in here which should just be the women, have had a baby. Jesus, de- Jesus described his life, he described his life like a woman who has given birth. You know what he, he, he says this, John 16, he says, you know, in childbirth there's, there's pain, there's work. But he, he says, you know what, all moms forget that when they hold their baby. And, and when Jesus... Remember, he says this in advance of his death. He knew what was coming. Already in his mind, he, his, the joy was so great. He said, when I birth this way to know God, all that stuff, like childbirth, like the pains of that, it's just it will be easily forgotten. And when ladies here have birth, I also bring donuts, and that's a plus two. He just says, easily forgotten. This is how Jesus puts into context his own life after he was accurately. If these things are true, Isaiah also has to be true. It's all true or none of it's true. The the passage that says, man of sorrow, Jesus goes, I mean, yeah, if you want to look at it that way. And then he comes back with these own descriptions out of his own mouth. Now, what do we really learn from Jesus? From the contrast of what we know he experienced based on what he said and what he showed evidence of joy in. Because these are lessons that I need to learn because I'm somebody who struggles seeing the the, the capacity for joy in light of certain things in life. I, I do. This is what we learn from Jesus. Sorrow does not defeat our capacity to receive and have the joy that God gives. Sorrow is a reminder that our joy is incomplete. And, and I need you to hear that. If you particularly struggle with depression, and you feel like you're more broken than other Christians are, or you must not be one, if you struggle finding joy generally in life, or you're just in a tough season right now, Jesus presented with great evidence the case that there is not an amount of sorrow that can defeat our capacity to have abounding joy. He presented the case really well. I find it very difficult to argue, even though in my, in my feelings, in my emotions sometimes, I really want to argue it. He presented that really well. I, I, I want you to hear that, that your capacity for joy has not been taken from you. I have to say that over and over, not to convince you, but to make sure that I keep believing it myself. There's two joy killers that Jesus points out to us. We talked about one joy killer a couple weeks ago. These are the next two joy killers. Um, the, the first one I want to talk to you about is, is the joy killer of finding joy in temporary things. In Luke 10, 20, um, there was 72 people that had just gone out and done ministry, exciting ministry. They were preaching um, relationship with God. They were preaching repentance. And they were exercising demons out of people. Now, you want to talk about a rush in ministry? Come face to face, I mean, think about it. Come face to face with a real, tangible, known spiritual battle and you see it won 
and you see it one through the actions that God empowers you to take. They came back telling stories and, and, and going over the details of what they were experiencing, and they were absolutely on a high they had never experienced. And you know what Jesus said at that moment? In this verse, Jesus says this, Do not rejoice, don't find your joy in this ministry, in exercising these demons. He said, find your joy, rejoice in that your name is written in heaven. You know why that's so significant? We, we've, we've learned about it even recently here in our church. There was going to be another occasion not too long in the future where they were going to come back from this same kind of opportunity very frustrated because they couldn't exercise those demons. Jesus told him, he said, listen, don't, don't just find your joy in something you've acquired or experienced. Anchor your joy in something that is as unchangeable as it can be. When he told them this, he's basically saying to these people, you believe correctly, your hearts are right, your lives have been given to God, your names have been, in other words, past tense, written in heaven, book of life writing. In other words, they were part of God's family, held in God's hand. He said, rejoice, find joy in that. Because ministry is going to get hard for you guys and ladies. And, and I can tell you, I mean, there's, there's times in church ministry where it seems like it couldn't go any better. And there's some times in church ministry where you pray to God that it doesn't get any worse. Because those things are changeable. Ministry is as changeable as your home is, as your job is, as your finances are. And Jesus here simply gives them a great piece of advice. He says, I want to preserve, again, I want to make your joyful, I want to preserve it. And he's giving them wisdom, saying, listen, don't let your joy be anchored in something that makes it be so shakable. He wants it to be firm. The second thing, with a little bit of connection here, I want, and I do want to read this, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It says, therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us Lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The great advice of this is at the middle. It says, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. It describes Jesus this way. That for the joy that was set before him, in other words, it wasn't for joy's sake, it was the task at hand. It was, it was his sacrifice for us. It was his return to life, his resurrection. In, in doing those things, Jesus existed in joy. And see, th there's, there's a very dangerous thing that happens when we take our eyes off of the object of our joy. I want, to explain, I want to explain it to you um, outside of the definition and the idea of joy for a minute because I really want this to land right. And, and I don't know sometimes, I, I, my, my mind starts spinning and I don't know sometimes when I say things if they actually really make sense. Um, that's a combination between my low self-esteem and sometimes what I interpret as confused looks on your faces. So I want, I want to use, I want to use um, the idea of lust, okay, the idea of lust. So if, it's, if, it, if at a point you look at another human being and you're like, mm, they look good, like bacon, egg, and cheese good, okay? So they look really good, 
and, and good enough to the point of lust, like you, you are attracted, these are sexual thoughts. This is all. So when we look at the Scripture, we, we know that on a heart level, Jesus says that that is a sin, that, like that's adultery in our heart, and we're accountable to that. Okay, So how do we, especially when it turns into a habitual sin, how do we defeat that? Well, at some point, to defeat lust, we, we have to take our eyes off of the person or the people that are so attractive to us and that we're giving our thoughts to. We take our eyes off them and actually focus our eyes on, on this idea of lust, how God sees it and what it does to our relationship. So in other words, to kill lust, we take our eyes off of the object of our lust and put it on lust specifically. And, and when we focus on the idea of it, that's actually when it dies. Does that make sense? All right, so now let, let's plug in joy. When we take our eyes off of what gives us joy and just focus on joy itself, am I happy? Why am I not happy? What's going to make me happy? We're so zeroed in on just the idea of joy that actually begins to kill our joy. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. So I, that's the best I can do at this moment. But that, in, that in, in itself is a joy killer. If you've ever noticed this, when you get really consumed with how unhappy you are and you're just, you're, you're just obsessing and rolling over that, it actually builds greater in you because it does that way in me. But when I focus my, my attention on the object of my joy, especially when it's as unshakable as it can be, keeping my eyes on Jesus, then all of a sudden, joy comes instead of it being this great and difficult work of my life. And sometimes what this seems like a losing battle. Those are two joy killers. Now, I told you, Psalm 16, and, and I promise you we're closer to the end than what you think we are. Um, Psalm 16, I want to give you a real-life example. Um, we, we saw the joy, we saw the happiness that is God. We saw Jesus take that into life and show the power of it, the might of it, the presence and the reality of it. I want to, I want to talk about David for, for a few minutes because David in Psalm 16 writes in a very artistic way what he's going through. Now, he wants something from God, and he wants it desperately. And if you've ever been at the place or you've known somebody at the place, even people that seem so depressed, they do sincerely on some levels want happiness, want joy. They may chase it, they may fall in love with misery, but, but there's something inside of our souls that seems to want it. David desperately wants protection. He says that very clearly at the beginning. But he shows us something really great. He wants and needs protection. But what comes after it is not his explanation to God of why he deserves it. What comes after it is, is out of what he wants, he gives now a declaration of who God is to him. And it's very important that it matches what his need is. Because if, if, if he just wants God's protection, but he wants it for the wrong reasons, is God likely to give it to him? Many of us would probably say, very possibly not. But his confession of who God is to him seems to position him at a much better place to be able to receive the protection he wants so bad. Psalm 16, protect me, God. That, that's his need. That's his want. For I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. 
As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me. Even at night when my thoughts trouble me, I always let the Lord guide me. Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me, and your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Now, there's four things that were essential for David. If he really was going to, to get protection from God, there was four things that come out from this psalm that were absolutely necessary for him to confess, for him to believe about God, and for him to live out, to position himself, to really be able to receive the protection that he wanted. These are the four things. David wanted God's protection and had to, de had to decide, is God, number one, my safest protection? Are there other things that I could do? Can I work a plan B? Can I, can I manipulate my resources and my finances and my social network? Can I do the things that will give me backup protection if for some reason God doesn't come through? If God's truly his protection, if it's truly he wants it from God, then he has to go all in on God being his protector. Is God my ultimate treasure? It's one thing to come to God for what we need, but, but to say, God, I believe you for what you'll give to me, and I really need it, and I really need to lean in and trust you, then, then David had to get to the place of going, well, do I go to God for everything? Is just God himself enough? Like, do I find everything in him? Is he what I'm working my life toward, my relationship toward, my whole, my whole mission in life towards? David had to decide, is my God sovereign Lord? Do I want God to be in control of this protection situation I'm in? Do I want him to just rescue me now? Or does he, in fact, have access to all my life in his leadership? Am I being guided in everything by him, or am I just willing to be guided in this? Because when we create a back door for another way out, that doesn't build a relational interaction truly between us and God. He had to decide, is God my trusted counselor? Do I listen to him now for this, or do I listen to him for everything? See, these four questions, when, when David answered these accurately, it positioned him to be able to receive the protection that God wanted to give him. And I would argue these four questions in many ways would also position us as believers to receive the joy that God is able to give us. Am I looking for joy and happiness other places, or do I really believe that he is my treasure? He's worth it all. Am I, am I staying long enough with him to really get counsel and advice for my decisions and resting on that his advice is really good and perfect and if I do what he says, that he'll also bring joy with that? Does, does he have say so? Am I pursuing my joy in all the places I want it but just wanting to get extra from him? When we really go through these questions... It really positions us well when we confess Jesus accurately, when we believe God accurately, to really receive the joy that he wants to give us. So what do we do? For yourself, if you are somebody who struggles with joy, having joy, holding on to joy, 
Discovering who God is to you is a necessary part of finding joy in Him. It's, it's needed to, to come to that place. Don't disconnect from His Word. In John 15, 11 and 17, 13, Jesus is very clear. He says, I have spoken this so that you will have my joy in you and that your joy will be made full. In other words, Jesus said, the purpose of me speaking is towards this joy in your life. We can't disconnect from the Word. If you have trouble connecting to God's Word, connect to somebody that connects into God's Word well. Find that person. Grow in their shadow as they encourage you specifically with verses from His Word. Patch the holes in the gas tank. Um, if, if you have holes in your gas tank and you stop by the gas station and you put fuel in your gas tank, it, you're going to catch some of it, but a lot of it's going to leak out. If God is going to pour joy into my life and then I have gaping holes of sin and doubt and issues of my own, I can, I can leave those there and just say, hey, God, I'm struggling with joy. You just need to do something. Or I can do the work with Him and the work with others in my life to patch some of the holes in my life, get rid of some of the sins that, that, that are robbing me of joy. If, if, we're, if, we're, if we're consumed with, with giving our lordship away through addiction, if we are consumed with gossip, if we're consumed with pornography, if we're, if we're consumed with sins that, that are gaping holes in our life, then no matter what God pours in, we'll catch some of it, we'll experience it, we'll feel a little bit of it, but it's also going to run through us quicker than it fills us. So we've got to patch holes. We have to act against the joy killers that, that God identifies. How do we pour into the lives of others? Encourage them with the Word of God. Don't just tell somebody you're praying for them. Do the work of finding specific passages with specific truth that you can take into their life. Encourage them towards specific action steps. We're going to talk about some of those steps that we need to take um, as joy seekers next week. Um, raise the conversation. Uh, please hear this one. Raise the conversation from feelings to thoughts. We have to get out of the basement of feelings in life and into the thoughts of our beliefs and our mind. Then, then anchor the thoughts into the truth of God's Word. Because when people are, are, are sinning, when people are struggling with happiness and, and depression and sadness, they want to deny this idea of, of happiness can come to them at times. But when it's God's truth, that position, they have to deny God to deny joy. And I'm not saying we're trying to manipulate people, but we have to, we have to be the voice of God in the people's lives and present truth the way it needs to be. So, so raise the conversation level. And remember, because joy is a gift of God, you cannot give it to them, and you aren't failing. You aren't failing because they don't have it. If there's somebody in your life that you love dearly, and they can't seem to grasp joy, you're not broken because they can't seem to get it. You may love them greatly and you may be ready to throw up your hands because you are at the end of your rope on ideas. If we believe God's word accurately that joy is a gift, you're not failing because they're not receiving. You're called to love them and be intentional into their lives. But... Being a failure is a lie that Satan is whispering in. And he's wanting to divide us through that lie. It happens with spouses. When somebody goes, I can't make my spouse happy. Then that person buys into, you know what, they, they're right, they can't make me happy. And it becomes a divisive issue. And all of a sudden that marriage is on the rocks and headed for divorce. God's calling that marriage to be together. But the lies of Satan are working against it. See, we can be truthful and we can act wisely. 
We can be honest in reality, but still seek love and pursue the people and stick in with the people that are in our lives. When I began this message, I asked you, do you believe that God is happy? Because if the joy of the Lord really is what this just said it was, and I know it was like a sprint through a lot of stuff, but if the joy of the Lord really is what the Bible just said it was, then this is what is really true. Your strength and my strength, your joy and my joy, will only be as great as God is joyful. So if we continue to say, God, he's just, he's just kind of, he's, he's helping the good ones. He's not helping me. If we really buy into that, if we give into that, then that is going to tell us what level of strength and joy that we're going to walk in. But if we really believe that he is happy because he is God, then it's limitless in what he can give, even if we don't believe we're worth feeling it. Would you bow your heads for just a minute? We're going to sing a little bit of Cornerstone in just a second as we wrap up our service. And um, This song is, is, is a lot of truth. It's a lot of grace. Um, and as we sing this song, if there's um, a heaviness on your heart, there's a sadness that you're carrying, there's something you're going through, I want to invite you to walk away from where that feels like it's at at your seat and walk up front so we can pray together. Or you can pray with someone else. Or you can just pray yourself. If you're burdened over someone and you want to pray for them specifically, I want to invite you to come up front and pray for them. I know that you can pray where you're sitting, but there is something to just coming and saying, God, I want to, I want to, I want to invite you into this as well, and I want to give this to you. If you choose to stay where you're at, that's fine. But if you don't know you have a relationship with God, whether you move now or you move after this service, you come talk to me, you can know that you belong to Him. So everything that we just talked through is available to you. I can show you in God's Word, others here in this service can show you in God's Word how you can know that you're saved. Don't take a chance that you'll do it on the way out. Don't, don't, Don't delay too many times, please. Act on it when God is speaking to you so we can go through that in His Word together. We'll start that in here. We can continue that in another room. We'll take time and we'll prioritize that as much as anything else. God, thank you so much for your grace and your love. Thank you that we get to sing the praises of Jesus. Thank you that you are Lord of all, whether it's storm or whether it's sunshine. Thank you, God, that we can measure like this cornerstone. We can measure everything in our lives off of Jesus to know that we're headed in the right direction, that we can measure our joy off of him so that the joy we see in him, we know that we can have. God, help us to take your word literally so that we don't try to explain it away in our own doubt and our own hearts, but we truly live on and act on and speak on what your word says specifically. God, you know it is time that we change our thoughts and our core beliefs and we grow more accurately in who you are and what you say about us. So help us in that because I struggle and, 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 uh, and others do. We don't want fake joy. We want it sincerely. So God, help us to embrace the path that is leading to just that. As we worship, help help us sing with honest hearts. Great praise and great love for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? We're going to sing for just a few minutes. This is going to be very short. Your opportunity is now. 
We'd love to pray with you. Let's sing together.